Welcome to the Vineyard Northridge Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by our senior pastor, Neil Haney. For more information about our church, visit our website at vineyardnorthridge.org or find us on social media at Vineyard Northridge. This day and age of COVID and this 20, year 2020, I am so thankful that we only have two more months of 2020 left. I, Honestly, this has been a wonderful year in a lot of ways for our church. Uh, our church is growing. Uh, when most, most churches seem to be struggling, uh, God has just brought us so many people. Where there are new people among us this morning. So glad you're here. Uh, it just seems like God is blessing. It, it, he's doing a new thing here. In 2016, I honestly uh, thought we were probably done. And since then, God has just raised us from the dead. And this is so wonderful. So uh, I look out at you, and I just see so many wonderful faces that um, are, are new this year. And so 2020 in that regard has been good, but 2020 has been very difficult in a lot of ways. And so the mask and the social distancing and the communion cups that we normally we would just come forward and, you know, the, there's so many things that we have to do differently than before. And, uh, you know, this is one thing that is not pleasant for me at all. Uh, again, I hate doing announcements, uh, but uh, I don't know if you're aware but Clark County has been raised to a level three. Or we're in the red zone, as they call it. Uh, and so um, one of the things that, <clears throat> that we've talked about as a staff and, and uh, uh, have, have really uh, reluctantly come to is, is we're just really going to have to lean into wearing masks. Um, we, you know, we have that posted out here. But we're not... Do- so... A lot of people are like, ah, you know, you're violating my rights to, you know, we're not doing it for ourselves. We're doing it for those of us around us who, who may, be, um, may, may not be able to fight this stuff off if they get it, uh, especially older people. Uh, you, know, I, I, you know, Virginia Henson, who is normally here, she will put her chair in the very back away from everyone. She has a shield, uh, a mask. She, she's really trying to, because she's, she's, you know, close to 90 and uh, we just want to, we want to protect those people. So it's not about our rights. It's about putting, you know, Paul said, consider one another more important than yourselves. And so if you're here without a mask this morning, no condemnation at all. But I want us to, to really be cognizant of the fact that there are people around us that if they got this, they might not be in the 99.9% that survive it. They may be in that one percentile that, that can, can die. My parents are in there. Uh, my, my mom is in her mid-80s, my dad is in his late 80s, and, it, it, you know, I would appreciate it if people would, around them would, would, you know, protect them, and so we're just asking for everyone to be cognizant of that, and again, I hate doing that, but we, we are in an unusual time, and so uh, please be cognizant, please wear a mask if you possibly can. So, um, two weeks ago, uh, we taught, I taught on biblical giving, and then last week, uh, Dennis Kozlov uh, taught on biblical living. And so, this week is going to kind of be kind of a, an interesting uh, left turn here. Let's go back. I'm going to talk about biblical dying. Now, um, that may not seem like a very fun topic. Uh, who wants to talk about dying? Uh, you know, I, I didn't want to talk about dying, but... I felt like we were supposed to do this this morning. And um, biblical dying, the biblical dying I'm talking about is not when you reach the end of your life and you kick the bucket. I'm not talking about that. 
I'm talking about a different kind of dying. And so let me kind of explain this a little bit. I remember graduating from seminary in 1987. I know that seems like, you know, uh, many moons ago, and it, and it is. But I, I, um, the, my first year at a seminary, I graduated from Asbury Seminary, and so my first year at a seminary, I was the Clark County Jail Chaplain. That's what brought me to Springfield. And then in June of 1988, I became associate pastor of this church. I'll do the math for you. 32 years ago. So I've been around a long time, over half my life. I'm 62. I've been here 32 years, so over half my life. And so I was about 30 years old when I began my public ministry. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'm really, I'm not trying to make that, that parallel comparison, but I, I actually, my, I, I began um, uh, June 12th, and my, my 30th birthday was June 30th, so, you know, it was around that time. But, um, but I did think, honestly, you know, I'm, I'm seminary educated, I have... You know, I have spent a year in real ministry at the Clark County Jail. I've been leading criminals to Christ. I've been doing Bible studies with, uh, there was a guy in one of my Bible studies, the only reason he came to Bible study was to eat the, the powdered creamer. I, you know, he never heard a word I said, but he ate the creamer like crazy. But, I, you know, there were four high-profile murders during the, I came there in May, and that, during that summer there were, very, there were four very high-profile murders that year. A woman killed, drowned her two kids in Buck Creek. Do you remember that? Some of you. Uh, someone killed his father with a hatchet. Uh, someone beat his parents to death with a... I mean, it was just like really... Hop, and, and I got to minister to those people. I got to, you know... So, so I come here after, you know, this, you know, three years of seminary and this great, you know, year of ministering in real time in the jail. And I was, I was God's gift to this church. I, was, I knew everything. I knew everything, and I was going to educate everyone and everything I knew. Of course, I wasn't married. I didn't have a mortgage. I was, you know, renting a house uh, from a friend. Uh, I, w- I had no kids. I uh, had virtually no life experience. I worked for a year at a, as a personnel manager in a shoe plant in Kentucky, and I was, you know, that was really trying, uh, very lonely, very trying time, but I just thought I knew everything, and uh and so <laughs> I very quickly began to realize, as God took me through the process of spiritual growth, how little I knew. And uh, by uh, October of 1995, my mentor—I don't know how Phil Shank put up with me. Honestly, I, I said a few weeks ago I was like—he was like Andy Griffith. I was like Barney, you know. He carried my bullet in his pocket, you know, and, and so for some r- ridiculous reason, the elders decided to, since he was leaving for Russia in less than a year, to let him be on an emeritus status and to bring me on in, April, in, in October of 1995 as interim senior pastor. I'm not sure that was a really smart move. And so I launched into that year. Phil kind of moved, you know, out and doing his thing to prepare to leave for Russia, southern Russia, to be a missionary. And I'm like treading water, just trying to keep my head above the water for a year. Uh, again, I don't understand how this happened, but in, 19, in 1996, June of 1996, 
the church went ahead and made me their permanent senior pastor. And um, by October of, of that year, it was about this time of year, we were hiding from those terrible pagan evil people out on the streets doing trick-or-treat, and we were having our little harvest party back here, hiding from everyone. And uh, I, at, it was kind of drawing towards the end of that evening, and kids were running around, and, and parents were chasing kids, and you know the games were over, and things were wrapping up, and people were cleaning up. And I just remember standing over here along this line of trees in these condos that are now, you know, 24 years old, were brand new. They'd just been built. And uh, I was just standing there staring at these condos thinking, I'm scared to death, thinking if, this, if the people of this church, if the elders of this church knew how scared I am and how little I know about leading a church, because seminary doesn't prepare you for that. I thought it did. It doesn't. If they knew how little I know and how scared I am, they would fire me on the spot. And I believe that 100%. Um, it was about this time, and Wes, I think you still have my book, but I'll just read it off the screen here in a moment. It was about this time that a friend of mine named Wally Martinson, he, he's a good friend of mine, and uh, we, we were, I mean, he started the Nehemiah Foundation, etc., he came to me and said, hey, could we, we begin to meet as, um, um, you know, just as accountability partners and, you know, just, uh, I, I, so, so, you know, we started meeting and he handed me this little book. If someone could run that up to me, I'd appreciate it. He handed me this little book called The Principles of Spiritual Growth. And uh, Wes is coming with it, thanks. And um, I, you know, I mean, I've been given books, I've read books, you know, I've spent my entire life, it feels like, reading books. Thanks, Wes. And, uh, but this, this book instantly became my number one read besides the Bible in, for all time, and it still is. And uh, I read these words in the middle of my crisis of not knowing, you know, what I was doing. I went from knowing everything to knowing nothing, you know, <laughs> And uh, I read these words for the very first time. This book is about the process that God takes us through for spiritual growth. And in that process, it says one of God's most effective means in the process, in this process, is failure. <laughs> Many believers are simply frantic over the fact of failure in their lives. And all the time, they're resisting the main instrument in God's hand for conforming us to the image of Christ. Do you hear that? Failure is God's number one instrument for failure where self is concerned. And that's what he's that's what we're talking about dying today by the way is our self, our flesh. Failure where self is concerned in our Christian lives, our Christian life and service is allowed and often engineered, I love that, by God. It's allowed Things happen in our lives. We just live in a, in a really difficult world. You know, COVID's just a sign of what Jesus said when he said, we're talking about when he said, in this life you'll have trouble, you'll have tribulation. And so he uses those things, but sometimes he engineers it, engineered by God, in order to turn us completely from ourselves to his source for our life, Jesus Christ, who never fails. Okay, guys, let me, let me just put it to you this way. So God's primary, you can take that down, by the way. God's primary means 
of causing us to grow and helping us to grow is, is failure. I mean, he also uses marriage. Trust me, I know that. He, he uses uh, uh, illness. He uses all kinds of things to, to uh, you know, some things just happen. Some things he engineers. But failure leads to brokenness. Am I right? If you've ever failed, don't you feel broken? And broken should lead to, to need, which should lead to humility that should lead us to the feet of Jesus. But it doesn't always work that way. Because failure can lead to brokenness, which needs to, leads to need, which leads to sin, because we're, we're medicating our pain, we're trying to fill the emptiness, we're trying to deal with, you know, Midlife crisis is one of those failure times where, you know, we get a new car, we get a new wife, we get a new whatever. We're trying to, we're trying to deal with the failure in our lives and the need. And so we turn to sin, which leads to more brokenness, which hopefully leads to need, which leads to humility that leads to Jesus. And sometimes we just keep going over the long way rather than going the short way. Now, let me just encourage you, if you feel broken and you feel needy, just humble yourself before the Lord and go straight to Jesus. You're going to save yourself a lot of time and a lot of pain, okay? And a lot of hurt and a lot of damage in the lives of people in your family and people that you work with and your own self. But the death I'm speaking of is death to self. Death to self-will, self-confidence, self-effort, self... Now, I don't mean that we shouldn't be confident, but our confidence is in the sufficiency of the Lord, the all-sufficient one who lives inside of us. Self-promotion, self, self-centeredness, selfishness. The Lord has no interest in improving on your flesh. Okay, just hear that. He wants to put your flesh to death. He wants to put yourself to death so that he can replace it with the life of Christ. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory, not how pretty and polished you are and how smart you are and how much you're, how educated you are from seminary. This is a process, and it takes time, but God's in no hurry, okay? So I want to share with you, so, so we really need to ultimately fix our eyes on Jesus, right? So I want to show you as we're looking at the life of Jesus, he's, the, he's plowing the ground for us with this. And so I, I, I love this. this i got to set the context for this because Jesus is now in, at the end of his earthly ministry. I mean, when he did the wedding in Cana, uh, turning the wine and, uh, water into wine, not wine into water, but water into wine, that was his first miracle, public miracle, but it was done in a very small context, in a kind of a family friends of family wedding when the disciples were there and but it was very it was a very simple thing in a way to turn water into wine in a very small crowd now three years later his miracles have gone from turning water into wine to raising a man from the dead who had been in the grave for four days a very high profile person in the jewish community right outside of Jerusalem, not up in Galilee, away from all the action. Now it's like, it's like just across the, the Kidron Valley from, from Jerusalem is, is this you know, raising of Lazarus. And so many people were there that saw this miracle. 
that were there on the day, the day the, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem a few days later. And, and, and so his, his ministry has become very public, and his miracles have ratcheted up from turning water into wine to raising the dead. You understand what I'm saying? He's, he's now moved into a very large place of, of um, public interest. In fact, to the point that people have concluded if he can raise a man from the dead, he must be something special. He just might be the Savior, Messiah, King that we've been looking for for centuries. And so that's the context for this. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival of Passover heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting. Now, this is straight out of the Messianic uh, uh, coming Messiah, Savior, King, uh, Psalm 118, verses 26 and 20, uh, 25 and 26 is where this come from, comes from. They're quoting from that psalm, Hosanna, which means, Oh, save us. Oh, save us, Messiah, King. Oh, save us. Save us from the Romans. Save us from, from Gentile oppression. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a direct quote from Psalm 118. Blessed is the King of Israel. They had concluded, this is our Messiah King. He is the one who is going to save us from Caesar and all these oppressive Pilate and you know all these oppressive uh, uh, governors that were were in Israel and all the Romans that that roamed the streets of uh, <laughs> roam the streets. That's not intentional, but it's pretty good. Uh, anyway, to to keep order, all these Gentiles that were there oppressing them, he was going to be the king to save them. And of course, Jesus knew better, right? He knew why he came. He didn't come to be the king to rule over, you know, Rome and, and, and unseat Caesar. He came to put sin back on the cross in his own body, back on the tree. Adam took it off the tree, took it into himself. He became sin, put sin back on the tree. Your sin, my sin, back on the tree. And so Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written in the prophet Zechariah. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. He's like, he wanted to say, yes, you're right. I am your king, but I'm not what you're expecting. And I'm not going to do what you're thinking. I'm going to do something very different that's going to actually save you, not from Rome, but from your own sin. Okay? I'm coming to deal with your sin. And so... It says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. Hey, that, they represent us, guys. There were some Gentiles in that crowd that wanted to see Jesus. In fact, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus, and Jesus said, you know, guys, this is the moment I've been waiting for. When I become famous, not only among the Jews, but also among the Gentiles. And now my fame will stretch to the ends of the earth and everyone will come and worship me and bow to me. And I will be great. The great and mighty king of the world. Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said at all. That's what they were expecting him to say, I think. Jesus replied, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How would he be glorified? He would be lifted up on a cross. 
Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat... Now, this is the key passage, by the way, guys, of the entire sermon. This is the key passage right here. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We're going to talk about what that means. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there my servant also will be, and my Father will honor the one who serves me. Now listen to this. This is really important. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. I just want to point out a couple things here real quick. So, he comes riding into the city. They're shouting Hosanna. They're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus replies, the hour has come for the Son of Man to suffer. Now is my soul troubled. Now. The hour has come. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Whoops, sorry. (laughs) From this hour. It is for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He knows what time it is. He knows what time it is. It's not time for glorification the way we would understand glorification. It's time for him to suffer. It's time for him to die. It's time for him to die. Biblical dying is seasonal. Biblical dying is seasonal. I almost put the word cyclical in because we go through periods where we have a beginning. We come to Christ. We, we, we come to Christ and we have this beginning. And then, and then there's a season of, of sharing with our friends and bringing other people to Christ. And so there's a season of bearing fruit. But before long, there, you know, we begin to struggle with sin again, and then we, we start getting kind of bummed out about the fact that we thought we, had, we were done with sin because when Jesus came into our hearts, it seemed so wonderful, and we, sin couldn't touch us, you know, and, and now all of a sudden, all that temptation is back, and we're struggling again, and, and, uh, and then we feel like we're dying. And sometimes we do, we just feel like we're dead. Sometimes we get depressed. Sometimes we get sick. Sometimes we just, we're just, you know, we're just really discouraged. But that's not where it ends ever for the Christian. One of, one of uh, the great people that I got to know in seminary, not, not personally but from a distance, was the president of Asbury College when I was at the seminary. Incredible preacher, teacher. And he said, for the Christian... After every death, there's a resurrection. After every death with a little d in the Christian life, there's a resurrection. If you feel like you're dying right now, hang on. Just lay still in the grave. Resurrection's coming, okay? I don't know why it's not advancing. Uh, It's not advancing. Say, there we go. All right. Jesus replied, 
The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verily, verily, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Let, let me just fill out what I was saying. As I talk to mature Christians, I've, I've, I've looked, and I've looked at back over my own life, I see the seasons of beginning, beginnings, then growth, then, then fallowness, then death, then recovery, then fruitfulness, and on and on it goes. Because God is wanting to kill the things in our lives that are of the flesh and of self. And anything that dies for the Christian needed to go anyway. Even if it was our reputation, even if it was our, uh, our financial you know, independence, whatever we were leaning on besides Jesus, at some point needs to go. And so Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. I want to say this, biblical dying is hard. It is really hard. Guys, I've done it, and it's not fun. I've gone through seasons of dying that I, as I look back on my life, there were three or four major seasons where I felt like I was dead. And I'll talk about one of those in a minute. 2012, I'm looking at Lynette Reed. She, she watched me die. She's, she's a close friend. We, she started to our church uh, when I came here. So she's known me for 32 years. And she came to me one day, and she said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not. I said, I'm, I'm, I, I feel like a shell. And, and I, I just, I died that year. And I'll talk about it, but it's really hard Biblical dying is hard, okay? And, um, you know, I, I, Jesus talks about this in, in the parable, in the only, one of the only, there's only two parables in the Gospel of John, and they're not really parables, but they're parabolic, okay? It means that he's using an analogy. He doesn't do parables like the other three Gospels in John. I mean, John doesn't record them that way. But he does say this, Every branch in me that bears fruit, and he says, abide in me, you know, that whole thing. Every branch in me that bears fruit, my Father prunes that it may bear more fruit. I heard this uh, famous teacher back in the 80s say, when God prunes us, we don't know if he's killing us or just cutting us back. Because it all feels the same. It feels like death. And I read in Streams in the Desert a few, a few weeks ago about uh, this, this uh, man who was showing uh, a friend of his through his vineyard. And, um, and he says, you see these, these vines? He said, about five years ago, and they were just beautiful, and they were very, you know, they, it was a, you know, they produced incredible wine. He said, we hired a new vine dresser five years ago, and when he came here, and, and we were interviewing him, and he said, I want to see your vines, your grape vines. And so he took, took him out to the vineyard, and he looked it over, and he says, I will, not, I will not work for you unless you allow me to cut these vines all the way back, even with the ground. He said, if you'll let me do that, I promise you that you will have good wine. And so they trusted this guy. They hired him. And sure enough, man, he just came in and just cut him down to the nub. He said, I honestly thought they were dead. I thought he had destroyed my vineyard. And he said they, you know, the next year they grew back, but there were no grapes the first year. Oh, but the second year, he said, the best harvest of 
the biggest, most beautiful grapes we've ever had. Guys, pruning, dying feels like death. I mean, it, it, uh, biblical dying feels really hard. It's really hard. I told you about 1996. I had gone from thinking I was going to set the world on fire in, in uh, you know, whenever it was, 1988, 1996, I have a wife, <laughs> a mortgage, and a year-and-a-half-year-old uh, son that just led us in worship. Year-and-a-half old. I don't know what I'm doing as a father. Deb and I had a really rough start to our marriage. We were older and set in our ways, and it was hard. So I didn't know. I thought I was going to be God's gift to the woman that I married, and, and uh, I was a gift, all right. <laughs> if you're looking for ways to God to prune you. <clears throat> and so it was tough. And, uh, and so here I am, and all the shine has been knocked off, and I'm standing out there looking at those apartments, thinking, God, what in the world were you thinking putting me in this position as senior pastor? I do not deserve to be here, and I'm, please don't tell anybody. <laughs> God, please don't tell anybody what I just said. Don't tell them how scared I am. Don't tell them I don't know what I'm doing. But, you know, seasons pass, and, and things change. And so one of the things that I learned to do is surround myself with really smart people. You know, if you don't know what you're doing, the best thing to do is surround yourself with people that do know what they're doing. And so Laverne Nisley became my associate pastor. He had been a senior pastor in, in, uh, down in, in Cincinnati. We brought in some really good youth workers and children's ministers people. And, and, and it, it, all of a sudden, we were surrounded by a bunch of great, I was surrounded by a bunch of great people. And I could teach. You know, that was the one thing I could do. So our church grew. We continued to grow. And in 2008, we hit our pinnacle of growth. We hit 260. Now, when we hit 260, my friend Wally Martinson, who is, is kind of like, um, he's, he's, like I said, he started the Nehemiah Foundation, and he's always, his, his motto, he's a great spiritual leader in Springfield, and his motto was always, what can we do together that we can't do separately? I love that. I love that. So he brought together what he called the Big Ten, the, the ten largest churches in Springfield, and I was invited. And so we started meeting once a month on a Thursday morning, and I showed up, and I was part of the Big Ten. You know, 260 people is not a big church if you're in Columbus, where they have churches of 10 and 12,000, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. Uh, our largest church is, is First Christian, which is like two miles from here, and, uh, you know, they're 1,500 or 2,000, something like that. But anyway, I was sitting there among the Big Ten. And I was very careful not to say anything stupid because I was one of the smaller churches in the Big Ten. Big Ten. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but um, I, was, I sat there, and as I sat there in those meetings and I listened to these, these very educated, very seasoned pastors, most of the, even though I had been pastoring for 20-something years you know, by that time, most of these guys had been pastoring longer than me in Springfield. And, um, and, and they were smart, and they were sharp, and they knew this, and they knew that. And so I would be very careful when I did say something 
that it was, you know, I'd, I'd rehearse it in my mind 15 times, and then I would say it, and I would back out, hoping that no one would find out that I was stupid, you know. And so, but what happened was in 2008, we were at 260. 2009, we were at 240. 2010, we were at 220. 2011, we were at 200. You see, you see what, what's happening here? The church is no longer growing. It's shrinking. The, the uh, postmodern, post-Christian culture had taken over, and every church was experiencing that, but I didn't know that. And when we dropped in 2012 below 200 for the first time, I was hired because we went over 200. Now I was a bona fide failure. The statistics were proving it. My kids were teenagers. I was failing as a father again. I was failing as a pastor again. I was failing, failing, failing. I couldn't stop this thing from happening. And I started having anxiety attacks in January of 2012 that turned in from once every week or so to multiple anxiety attacks a day by mid, midsummer. Uh, we came back from a vacation from hell only to find out that we had been um, scammed out of uh, $2,200. We went to the bank. They told us that we were overdrawn by $1,200, and I went off the cliff, free-falling into depression. Ended up in the hospital. Ended up being uh, diagnosed with major depression on some pretty serious meds. In, in December of 2012, I was suicidal and um, spent the first week of 2012 in a, in a hospital in South Columbus. And uh, I was dead. I, I was dead. My adrenal system was completely depleted. I felt like a shell of a human being. I knew that the elders were done with me here. I, ne I, I knew that I would never be back behind this pulpit in this church. I just, I knew it. And I remember sitting that first morning in the meeting that, that uh, they had, you know, where they tell you how to deal with anxiety, breathe through your nose, out through your mouth, all this stuff, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there in this this nice lady's talking, and I'm not hearing a word she's saying because all I'm thinking is, because I couldn't feel the Lord. I thought I'd lost my salvation. I thought I was dead. And my blood pressure was out the roof. My, my chest hurt. And uh, all I, I just kept thinking, so this is what it feels like to know that you're about to die and go to hell. I was dead, guys. And God met me there. God met me there. He sent, in a, in a non-Christian facility, he sent Six people my first day, Christian, his people, to love on me, to pray for me, including the psychiatrist. Who ever heard of a Christian psychiatrist with her Angora sweater and wool skirt and heels, with her, you know, sitting there taking notes about how, you know, crazy I was. And she said, Mr. Haney, I'm going to change your medication. Six weeks from now, you're going to be fine, and I'm going to pray for you. And she said, by the way, my daughter goes to Vineyard Columbus. It's like, <laughs> whoever heard, I didn't even know. I thought those were extinct, you know, Christian psychiatrists. At the end of the day that day, there was this little social worker um, that came to me and said, hey, could I meet you in my office for a minute? And I'd met with her partner the, the, during the morning for an intake. And she said, I heard everything you said, not because I was eavesdropping, because this this, you know, office is six by six. I couldn't help hearing what you said. But she said, I just want to tell you what the Lord told me this morning. 
You're not crazy. You're not demon-possessed. You haven't lost your salvation because I felt the presence of the Lord walk in the room with you and I see Christ in your eyes. <laughs> and you're going to go back and pastor your church. They're going to bring you back. She said that prophetically. And she said, by the way, I go to the vineyard. <laughs> so she's a vineyard girl and she prophetically tells me I'm going to go back and pastor my church. I thought I was done. And in July of 2013, after six months off working at Tech 2, I came back to pastor this church again. And God has since then, I mean, done amazing things. The church continued to lose. You know, we, we went under 100. But you know what? Right now, I'm looking out at probably 80 people. I'm more happy with 80 people than I was with 260. I'm not basing my existence, my, my importance, my significance any longer on how many of you are sitting out there. They, they call it uh, buildings, butts, and budgets. <laughs> That's where pastors get, get their you know, self-image and self-worth. I'm a son of the Most High God, not an employee of you know, some you know, employer in the sky. And he loves me. And that song this morning that we sing, they, we sing the, the goodness of God, that's my theme song from now on. I've sing that to the Lord multiple times a day now. I'm so glad we did that song today. But I survived it. There was a resurrection, guys. And then there was a season of oh, growth again. And there was a season of fruitfulness. And I don't know where this is all going. I hope I don't have to go through another season of death. But I do know this. If I do... It's going to produce fruit because that's the thing. That's the thing. He says anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Um, you know, it's, it's not that we have to hate life. That's not it at all. It's just that if, if we love everything about this life that isn't about Jesus, like, like if we love materialism, if we love... Uh, sports, if we love this, if we love that, and, it, and, and we don't ultimately give our hearts to Jesus and love him more, then, then life is meaningless because it, it just blows up in our faces. It just crumbles in our hands. It's just not worth it. And he says, whoever loves, uh, serves me must follow me. Where was he going right then? He was going to the cross. you got to follow me. His cross was an actual cross. Our cross is God's will. That was God's will for him. Remember he talked to his father about it in the garden? He said, Father, if there's any other way, if, we, if there's a plan B, I don't want to go to the cross. And the father said, no, son, this is the only way to redeem these people. There, this is the only way to do it. Dennis quoted from, from uh, Hebrews 2 last week. He said, uh, it was... It was appropriate, it was necessary for the author of our salvation to suffer so that he could bring many sons and daughters to glory. He had to suffer so we could, we could come into a relationship with God and experience his in, indwelling presence in us again that we'd lost in the garden. And so the same Jesus that's saying, take up your cross and follow me, is the same Jesus that says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
His light and easy yoke and burden and the cross are the same, but, but it does involve dying, guys. Most of the time, we're blessed. Most of the time, God is blessing us and he's taking care of but, but then there are seasons of dying. And so this, I, very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Let, let, let me just say this. So, so, so I'm going to tell you about this. So, so when we come to Christ, it's usually because we're desperate. We're in need. We have fallen into the dirt. We're covered over in darkness. And we're disintegrating. And we say, God, help me. And, we turn, and someone tells us about Jesus. And we, we believe it. And suddenly, there's life in us. And that life begins to push up out of that darkness, and it grows up, and, and, and we grow, and, and we become this, well, let's just use the wheat stalk for an example. We come this, become this beautiful stalk of wheat. Life has sprung forward, and, and then, you know, and then we, we, you know, we're, we're, we're telling other people about Jesus and all this stuff, but then we find a church and we find fellowship, and we, we begin to fellowship with those of like minds, and, and we're doing great, and, and we get into a small group, and we're, we're with even closer relationship with people of like minds, and that's, that's all great, that's all good, that's all necessary, that's wonderful, but if in that wheat stalk, all these little wheat seeds are all together, they're all clustered together, they're you know, swaying in the breeze and reflecting the sun off their, their shiny outer, outer shells, you know, and they look all pretty, and you ever seen wheat? You know, it's kind of pretty. It's like a flower almost. But then something happens, and, and, and something loosens that little, that little seed of wheat, that kernel of wheat, and it, it breaks loose and falls into the ground. And, and no longer are, is the fellowship and, and the closeness, like, like the people around us can't save us from what's happening. Because even though we're still in fellowship, and this is not a perfect analogy, but this is what Jesus is talking about, suddenly we find ourselves in darkness again. Suddenly we find ourselves covered over with problems. We get a diagnosis that we didn't want to hear. One of our, A relative dies. Uh, we experience financial downturn. We, we lose our 401k. We get fired from our job, or we, or we just can't handle it anymore, and we have to walk away. Or something happens, and suddenly we're plunged into darkness and, and the ground kind of swallows us up. And that shiny shell that we were, uh, you know, all pretty up on the sweet stalk, you know, is suddenly disintegrating like I did in 2012. My, you know, the Big Ten, I'm, I'm part of the Big Ten, you know, and, and uh, all of a sudden, I don't even want to go around these guys anymore. And I, at one point, I told him, I said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your friend because I am not big. And they said, you're not going anywhere. We love you, Neil. You stay right here. So I'm a church of, you know, 70, 80 people sitting around with people that are pastoring churches of 1,000, and they still want me in the room. But anyway, that's beside the point. I, so that, that, that shiny shell gets disintegrated and death, it just dis, disintegrates. You just disintegrate. But then something amazing happens. The life that was in that, that life seed, that, that life potential that was in that, that wheat seed, that wheat kernel of wheat that was up on the, on the pretty shiny you know, wheat clump, 
There's, there's potential for life there, but there's a hard shell around it. God has, has caused some dying to happen. The, the husbandman has pruned the vine, so to speak, and we feel ourselves dying, and yet suddenly as we crack open, as we're broken, life begins to emerge, and suddenly it pokes out above the top of the soil and begins to grow in the sunshine of God's love and redemption, and, and then it produces some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. You see what I'm saying? And so, my final point is this. Oh, dying is necessary. Sorry, I don't know how I missed that. But dying is necessary. It's necessary for this to happen. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies. But then then this happens. Biblical dying brings forth fruit. There's there's produce. There's, There's something that happens. And we begin where our flesh has died, the spirit begins to live. Where we were all important, Jesus is now important. Where, where we were looking to ourselves, looking to our own resources, looking at our own talents, looking at our gifting, our education, all that stuff, now we just abandon all that and say, you know what, Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. But if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about our church, visit vineyardnorthridge.org or find us on social media at Vineyard Northridge.